Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 1 and verses 9 through 17. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. You may be seated. Thanks, Will. Well, as you heard, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. We finished our walk through Ruth next week. Lord willing, we will begin our Advent series. And it's kind of my custom to take a week in between uh, our series just to do whatever I want, (laughs) whatever I've been reading, and sometimes to do it however I want. Um, So if you're new here, this sermon will feel a little bit different than normal sermons. Normally we just walk through books of the Bible trying to hit all the relevant places to make the main point very clear. Uh, this morning uh, might feel a little more Tim Keller-ish, if, you, if that means anything to you. But we're jumping into Colossians chapter 1, where Paul is writing to the Colossian church from prison. And in the first eight verses, he's basically said, hello, and I'm praying for you. <laughs> and now, where we're jumping in, we get to hear how exactly Paul prays for this church. I mean, Paul has one thing that he can contribute, one significant thing he can pray, and here's what he's praying for. So I think it would be good for all of us to have our eyes and our ears open to see what is the one thing that Paul is praying for this church. Uh, Last week I had the opportunity to be around a bunch of church planters, and it's funny, I feel like I've been around church planters a lot. I've been in the church planting world for a long time, but I've never actually been the guy, the, the lead church planter. So sometimes it kind of feels like always the bridesmaid, never the bride in those worlds. But, uh, but I've been around it long enough to, to have learned a lot from these guys. I've been, I've been a part of a church plant. I've uh, been around church planters. I've been a part of a church replant of sorts. Um, And I know that in those early days, and some of you here, you were here when OGC was planted so that you would really connect with this. In those early days, there's this feeling like we don't have all the resources we need. We never have all the resources we need. Uh, There's a fragility about this thing. If If most church planters are honest with themselves, they're wondering, is this even going to exist in a year? This thing that we're investing our hearts and our souls in. And there's just a deep sense that if, if God doesn't come alongside us, this very well may not make it at all. And, and this kind of early church planting feel is the way I think Paul 
feels towards the Colossian church. He's wanting this church to work. And for us at OGC, uh, we are entering a new season um, as a church, uh, a season that my predecessor talked about. He called this season of influence. And, uh, and it's, been, it's been fun. It's been a great year. And we're putting together our annual report. So we're going to give you a report, church, on everything that we said we'd do and how did we do that. And it's an encouraging report. I mean, if you look at the report, we, you know, the, we're growing. We've joined Acts 29. We have a new vision, new values, and, a, and an associated strategic plan. We'll be coming out with a new podcast. We're talking about very significant and unique ways to partner with larger uh, Christian organizations like RTS and the Gospel Coalition, and all that's good and fine. But as we're putting together this report, it really just hit me that all the best plans in the world mean nothing if the right foundation isn't here. If there's a flaw in the foundation, everything we build on top of it will be flawed. And what Paul's praying for here is that foundation. So when we look at Paul's prayer, we're going to see that he prays that they would see the king, that they would know the king, and that they would be transformed by the king. This is the foundation we're building on. So first, that they would see the king. All right, this is where it's going to feel a little different. This whole point, none of it is in the text. <laughs> and, and, and almost 100% of it is Tim Keller. So you know it's good. Um, but it's not in the text, but it's assumed in the text. I mean, if you look at Colossians 1.13, Paul is praying, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So he's, he's talking about us being brought out of one kingdom, put into a second kingdom, and he's talking about who the king is. And so he's assuming they have solid categories for a worldly king and a heavenly king. Because even the most pagan people back then would have understood what a worldly king is and does and, and that there's some sort of heavenly king out there. But we come from an entirely different context. You know, every 4th of July, we celebrate the fact by blowing all kinds of things up that for 250 years now, almost, we have not had a king. We're in charge of this country. We've given ourselves the power and so you better believe that that's going to affect the way that we understand kingship, both here and certainly in the heavenly realms. So Paul is saying that there is a heavenly king, which is a hotly debated issue in our society. And he's saying that it's this king who created everything and maintains everything by holding it together. Look at verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, here it is, all things hold together. So, so there's order, everything's held together, but when we look at the order we see and we don't have all the facts, it creates confusion. So here's, here's an example. Uh, in 2005, I was walking uh, through a city in Italy, and every church bell began to ring. I mean, wildly. It wasn't like on the hour. The bells were just ringing fast. They were ringing together, and they rang for a very long time. So I'm, I'm observing some sense of order here. 
but I don't have all the facts, so I'm very confused as to why all these bells are ringing until I realize Pope John Paul had just died. And so once I have all the facts, the order begins to make a lot more sense. And so our friends from an atheistic perspective would have the same kind of confusion when we come to the order in this world. So you have visible order and you also have invisible order. And so we'll look at those very briefly. In the visible world, at the largest scales and at the smallest scales, we see order. We see it through the telescope. We see it through the microscope. Uh, There are laws of physics that we have learned. And these laws of physics are based on the assumption that once we see something happen in this world, because of that order, it's going to operate the same way the next day if all the variables are the same. Um, this is the reason we step on a scale one day and the next day we don't expect to be 20 pounds lighter all of a sudden. There are laws that stay the same. We know things melt at a temperature, that they become gas at a temperature, that they freeze at a certain temperature. And so this is the reason that we can fly airplanes. We have laws of aerodynamics that allow us to predict through the order of the universe how things are going to work. And so all of this has posed a really big problem to atheistic scientists and sociologists and philosophers because they have to answer the question, if this universe is truly just a product of accidental collision of molecules, how do we explain this order? How do we explain the way that it's maintained? And there's a a well-known 18th century non-Christian philosopher named David Hume. Some of you know David Hume. Uh, and he says this, I'll tell you one thing, the orderliness of the universe is so inexplicable, you certainly cannot disprove God. Nobody can be sure there is no God when you have this kind of order. So, so what David Hume is doing here is he's acknowledging, I see this order and I'm confused. <laughs> I, 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 I don't have all the facts, and so he's being honest about his confusion. And this is what well-meaning atheistic scientists and professors and philosophers, they've got to deal with and acknowledge that they're honest. There is an order, and it confuses us. So that's, that's order in the visible realm, but we have order in the invisible realm too. And, and this, you know, there are many people who say there is no invisible realm. There's no eternal. There's no invisible. There's no spiritual. There's no moral, really, if you get down to it. But we see order in the moral world, whether we want to ex- acknowledge it or not. I was having lunch with a student at one of the most prestigious universities in the world. I'm, believe it or not, I'm not talking about Florida State. It was a it was an even more prestigious university than Florida State. So you know this guy's smart. And he was telling me there's really, nothing, there's really no such thing as morality. Morality is just a human construct. Really, what's, what's good for you, Jim, that's good for you. But it may not be for me. And what's good for me is good for me, and it may not be good for you. And as he's talking and I'm listening, I began to take french fries off of his plate and eat them. And he's a, he's a really nice guy, so we kind of like, I could see his confusion, but he let me do it. And then I went for his hamburger, and I took a big old bite. And he's like, what are you doing? And I, well, well, this is good for me. It's good for me. I mean, there's no such thing as morality. And, and so he's contradicting himself because he's acknowledging a level of moral order, but he can't, he can't explain it because it doesn't have all the facts. 
And this kind of confusion creates even more chaos in our society. So here's one example of the chaos that comes from acknowledging some moral order but not knowing where it comes from. So in our society, if a woman wants to terminate a pregnancy, that's legal. They do that right down the street on Maitland Avenue every week from what I'm told. But if a pregnant woman is driving down Maitland Avenue, let's say right in front of that abortion clinic, and a drunk driver hits her and that baby is killed, that drunk driver goes to jail for manslaughter. So same place, same things happening, but in one scenario, that baby has value and in another one, it doesn't. I mean, it's the kind of chaos we get when we acknowledge some sort of moral order. We get a situation by situation as to whether a life even has value. And so not understanding that there's a king creates all this confusion when we interact with this order. But what Paul is saying really clearly is there is a king. There's a king who has created and ordered and it is not by chance that we exist on this little ball. You know, in this perfect measure of space, any closer to the sun we burn up, any, any farther and life is eliminated because it's too cold. It's no coincidence that we love and we care and we feel. We were created to do these things by a king. He has ordered these things for a reason and he holds them in his hands. So that is the assumption under this text that we have to get as 21st century Western Christians before we proceed. So now we proceed. Paul, getting more into the text here, he's praying that they would know the king. All right, so this king isn't just a king to be acknowledged. He is a king to be known And to the degree that we know this king, to that degree, we're going to experience a different kind of order. We're going to experience an order that he intends for us to experience in our hearts. So look at verse 9, back at the beginning of our passage. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual understanding. So this word knowledge here, it doesn't simply mean knowing about something. It means knowing somebody, really knowing somebody like, like a personal acquaintance. And if that's true, you know, we might wonder then, well, they're already Christians, right? <laughs> I mean, why is Paul writing to a Christian church praying that they would know God? It's because the king, he doesn't just require and desire an introduction. He desires a relationship. And he doesn't desire just a one-and-done relationship, a one-and-done introduction, the way we might think about you know, planting a tree outside and walking away from it forever. God desires an eternal relationship. You know, kind of, kind of the way, think, of, think of a marriage, I guess, would be a near comparison to what we're talking about. There is a day when you publicly and formally and hopefully permanently declare and decide we're married. But then that just begins the journey of getting to know that person and understanding that person. And inevitably, if this goes on for decades, becoming more in ways like that other person. So this is what Paul's praying for, that they would be filled with the knowledge and the will in an understanding kind of way that they would grow in this relationship with God. 
And if this is true, there are two critical questions that we need to ask at this point. Why is it that we don't naturally know this God and how can we know this God? Because that those are also underneath the text. If Paul's praying for this thing, it, it insinuates that there are barriers. So what are those barriers? The main barrier is that deep down, we want to be king. Deep down, we want to be king of our lives. We want to call our shots. We want to decide the ways that things should go and operate. And every time we choose to operate in a way that is outside of the order of the king of the universe, we are declaring ourselves king. We declare ourselves king when we lie. We declare ourselves king when we develop a different sexual ethic. We declare ourselves king when we decide we're going to be a jerk to our family members and not love them the way that God has ordered things to work. And do you know what we call that? In the realm of kings, when we decide we're not going to recognize the authority of the rightful king and we're going to make ourselves king, we call that high treason. And do you know what the punishment for high treason is? Death. And again, this is hard for us to understand because we were, our country came about because of high treason. <laughs> you know, had we lost the, the Revolutionary War, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, and all these other guys would have been executed for high treason. And, and we can justify that and say, well, well, that king was bad. And not only was he bad, he was on the other side of the earth. He doesn't get us. He doesn't understand us. This is the right thing to do. But when we go to the spiritual realm, we don't have that argument because God is perfect. He has nothing but perfection in himself. And so if we understand that high treason in this world requires a physical death, it should make sense that the high treason against the king of this universe with no flaw in him would be an eternal death. And I could imagine somebody saying, all right, Jim, that that just escalated very quickly. (laughs) We were talking about lying and now we're at eternal death. (laughs) And I'm I'm not connecting all those dots. So I wanna help you connect these dots. The punishment isn't always decided by the crime. Sometimes it's decided by who was offended. And so here's how, this is an example I'll give you. Imagine one of you, after the service, you come up to me and you punch me in the face. All right, please don't. You'd, you, you, I don't think you'd be at much risk as my hand-to-hand combat skills, but I think you'd be in jail by the end of the day. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I'm not very important. And so you're probably gonna go to jail and sleep in your own bed tonight if you come and you hit me. But what if you went to the governor of the state and you punched the governor? Well, now that's a more important person. You're going to prison. <laughs> well, now what if you could somehow gain access to the president of the United States and punch him in the face. You may never see the light of day again. I mean, it's the same crime, the same offense, but the person offended as they become more important, the punishment becomes more severe. So when we're talking about high treason against the God of the universe, it makes all the sense in the world that the punishment would be extreme. So there is this huge barrier between us and our king. And the way that that barrier is removed is what makes Christianity different than every other worldview. And it all comes down 
to one word in verse 12, qualified. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This word qualified differentiates us from every other worldview. So you Islam, all these other worldviews, they have a, a way, a process in which we qualify ourselves. So Islam has the five pillars. Judaism has the Mosaic law. Hinduism would qualify themselves over through many different lives and good works acquired through those lives. Now, my hunch is that probably none of us are really tempted by those different ways of qualifying ourselves. But in our world, we are surrounded by a form of agnostic secularism. So when I look at people in our context outside the church and I can get to the bottom of their worldview, it's usually some form of if I just do more right than wrong, I'll be okay. You know, if I, if I do my best to live a good life, God's going to accept me. That's what's going to qualify me to be able to, to be okay with him. And our own logic blows this worldview out of the water. And, and I, could, I could break it down and tear it down in a number of different ways, but I'm just going to do it this one way. Imagine that you were in front of the judge. The crime is high treason. And you say, you admit, I, I committed high treason, but look at all the good work I did for the homeless. W- would you allow that kind of logic into our court system? Well, great, you did a lot of good work for the homeless, but it, that does nothing for the current crime. You are here for high treason. And so if we would not even use that kind of logic in our own court system, why would we ever have the gall to think that we could bring that kind of logic to the God of the universe? This is what makes Christianity different. There's not some process laid out by which we qualify ourselves, but we have to be careful. It's not the other extreme either. God's not just removing the qualifications we see that Paul says God qualifies us. That is a third and a very unique and it's the only place in our world where this kind of qualification exists. So how? How does God qualify us? Comes down to two very important words in verse 13. Possibly the most important verses in our passage. I'm going to read 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom, those are those words. If you have an old school paper Bible, uh, both of you who are looking at a paper Bible, paper Bible, go ahead and underline in whom. If you can highlight it in your iPad or whatever, do that. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So these two words, in whom, they answer both how we can know God and the kind of relationship that we have with Jesus. This is really important. So I'm gonna use a fancy word to describe our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's called a federal relationship. Jesus is our federal head. And and that may be a new term for you, but it's not a new concept. All right, here are three examples of federal headship in our society. Three examples, again, I got from Tim Keller. If you are in a labor union, 
you have a federal head. You've elected somebody as your federal head, somebody who argues for you, who negotiates salaries and uh, maybe even vacation and days off for you. So if you have a good negotiator as, as your labor union, in your labor union, well, it's going to benefit you. If you have a bad one, <laughs> you're, you're going to have to deal with that too. So you acquire the benefits and the shortcomings of your federal head, the negotiator for the labor union. Marriage would be another, another category where you're in a federal relationship and if you both have your name on the house and you share your bank accounts, the, the prosperity or the debts that one acquires also go to you. Just before I moved from Mississippi, I was listening to two women talk and one woman was complaining that she had to work. She wasn't in a financial situation in her marriage where, uh, where she could just stay at home and she was not happy about it. And the other woman said, stop dogging your husband. You ain't married rich. That's your fault. And I was thinking that, that's, that's a federal relationship. That's right, you ain't married rich. Because what, what, what is true of him financially is true of her financially. Or here's a third example. If you have to hire, say, a defense attorney, you know, what's true of him or her is true of you. So if your defense attorney is really good, is really good at what they do, they can make a really profound argument and do it in a profound way, that's going to benefit you. That may get you off the crime. If you have a really bad defense attorney, you're screwed. <laughs> Whatever is true of that person is now true of you in some way. So that's what a federal relationship is. And so when we enter into a federal relationship, we get the goods or the shortcomings of that person. And this is the type of relationship we have with Jesus Christ. And this is why we have all these phrases in our Bibles, like crucified with Christ, seated with Christ, raised with Christ, and so on. Because if you believe in Jesus, then he becomes your federal head. What is true of Jesus becomes true of us. And what is the truest thing about Jesus Christ? Is that he is God's perfect and beloved son for eternity. So we believe in Jesus as our federal head. The same is true for us. We are true, beloved sons and daughters for eternity. Because our federal head came and paid the punishment for high treason on our, on our part. And the brilliance of it is that this creates the only worldview where God can be both just and loving. There's not another worldview where God is both just and loving. And here's a a way I think about what's going on because I don't want to get lost in the terminology. I want to understand the relationship. And so there's a story I've heard from so many different places now, I'm not sure who to credit. And I actually don't think the story is true, but it's still really helpful. And here's how the story goes. There was a king in the medieval times, and he was regarded by everyone around as the most loving and the most just king in the whole land. And then one day he found out that someone was stealing from, from his treasury. And so he went out to the kingdom and he, and he said, listen, 
I want everybody to be provided for. If you need anything, you come and I will help you, but stealing cannot be tolerated in this land. And so he went back and it happened again. And he went out to the kingdom and said, again, if you need something, I'll help you, but no stealing can be tolerated because he was a just king. 10 lashes for the person who did this. Then the next day, more money is missing. He comes out and says, 20 lashes. On the third day, more money was missing. 30 lashes for the person who is stealing this money. And the next night, they find out who was doing it. It was his wife. So now, he, the whole kingdom is really looking, all right, he can no longer be loving and just. He's got to be one or the other. If he, if he loves his wife, he'll let her off the hook, but he's not just anymore. But if he punishes his wife, he maintains his justice, but he's really not that loving. So he comes out to the kingdom and he says, she will pay the price for what she has done. And so they, they tie her up and the man with the whip begins to pull his whip back and the king steps in front of his wife facing her. And the man with the whip pauses and the king turns around and says, you give this woman everything she deserves. And all 30 lashes went out and not a one of them touched his wife because she was protected by her federal head who loved her. And that's the only way that king could stay loving and just. And we have the only worldview with a God who in the same way is both loving and just. So that's how we can know our king. We are made loved, true children of the eternal God through our federal head, Jesus Christ. But he doesn't just want us to know him. It doesn't stop there. We see in this prayer of Paul's Paul's, that he wants us to be transformed by him. That's the last and for what it's worth, the shortest point. (laughs) That we would be transformed by the king. Look at verses 10 and 11. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. So yes, our king wants obedience. He wants obedience, but he doesn't want it just on the outside. He wants us to want it. He doesn't want to just change us on the outside. He wants to transform us on the inside. And the result of that would be obedience. And this is something that I think is so misunderstood outside of the church. When I was dating Angela, I think we were engaged, we were at my parents' house, and I have this vivid memory of my brother asking me to go get him a drink. <laughs> and I was kind of like irritated, but I don't want to look like a jerk in front of my fiance, so I go get him a drink, hand it to him. And then Angela just hints at the fact that she's thirsty, <laughs> didn't even ask for a drink. I couldn't have got out of my chair fast enough. I went and got her a drink immediately. Because with my brother, I was just conceding. It was just a concession. I didn't really care that he had a drink. And that is how so much of the world looks at Christianity. It's just concession. We, we concede to certain moral norms because we have to. Thinking that it's going to qualify us in some way. Christianity is about God coming in, giving us this relationship changing us from the inside transforming our hearts to where we we enter into a relationship with him where at the end of the day what makes him happy is what makes us happy and we want to align to the order of his design because it's good and it pleases him 
That's the kind of obedience that Christianity creates. It's not concession. At the core of Christian, the Christian message is three words. Jesus is king. And I am on record as having said that before Kanye released his last album, which I like, by the way, for what it's worth. Jesus is king. That's, that's, I mean, if you funnel all of Christianity down to three words, that's what it is. Jesus is king, and we align to that, and we benefit from it, or we don't. And if Jesus is king, it's going to do a lot in our lives. But at least two things will be true. First, we are going to be able to endure the trials of this world. I mean, this world, there is chaos, there's confusion because we don't understand where the order comes from. But what Jesus is promising is that when we are in a relationship with God, there's an order in our hearts that can transcend any chaos or confusion that we're going to experience. I had lunch some time ago with some some missionaries from a very Muslim part of the world, a very closed part of the world, and they had just seen a convert, which was a big deal. And this man converted to Christianity, and people in the village came and took away his wife and children. He couldn't see his wife and children again until he would deny Christ. I mean, if I'm honest, I don't, I don't know that level of persecution. I don't know that level of confusion and chaos and trials because of the faith that I, put on, that I take on. But in those kinds of moments, nothing short of Jesus as king is going to get you through. Secondly, it'll help us endure the trials. And then we're going to see that evangelism will very naturally happen. Uh, the, The design by God is that he would transform us and as an overflow of our transformation, both by the things we do and the things that we say, other people would be transformed. Other people would be brought into the kingdom. You know, evangelism, at the end of the day, it's not just knowing the right facts or enough Bible verses or being able to argue well. It's about being transformed and wanting other people to experience the same transformation as we've experienced. And the only way we can experience we can see other people be transformed as if we're transformed ourselves. We have to be in the kind of relationship where we are being made more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ before we can ever have any expectation that we're going to be bringing other people into the kingdom. At the end of the day, our faith is Jesus is king and we have to ask ourselves, is he our king? Is he your king in the way that Paul obviously says that he should be? When I became a Christian, somebody presented to me, maybe you've seen the the old drawing of two thrones. I think Bill Bright is the author of this drawing. I'm not 100% sure, but there's there's one throne that has had me on the throne as king of my life. And then there was another throne that had Jesus on the throne as king of my life. And I looked at it and I knew that that's me. I'm king of my life, but I want Jesus to be. I understand that I can't control anything because if if I'm king of my life, I can't even control whether I'm gonna make it home safely today. But if Jesus is king of my life, I'll be good no matter what happens. 
This is a passage about kingship. And Orlando Grace Church, we exist in the sixth most de-churched city in the United States. Maybe the world. The percentage of evangelical believers in our city is the same as Manhattan and Seattle. It feels a little bit different to us because the transition has happened so fast that we still maintain some traditional values. Uh, there are a lot of people, I use the word de-churched, people here used to go to church, so they've got some concept for what it is we think and believe and do. They've rejected it for some reason. But if we're going to exist and thrive and win people into this kingdom in this context, Jesus has to be our king. And every strategic plan that we develop and every, every strategic step that we take means nothing if every one of us isn't committed to Jesus being our king. That is Paul's hope for this new church in Colossae. It's, it's our hope for every church plant that we have the, the privilege to work with. But we can never forget this, this is our only hope as well. Is that we would be a church that would boldly and loudly and lovingly and graciously proclaim Jesus is king. That's our hope. That's why we come together. So let me pray. God, we are so thankful that you are king and we are not. And we pray for all the ways that we, we do see ourselves king and we do want to be king, that they would be changed, that you would show us that you would open our eyes in a way that really only you can do that you would show us that you're the king that matters and that you're not a king who is hanging carrots in front of us or putting burdens on our back, but you're a king who has taken on those burdens to set us free, to call us into a relationship. And I just, I ask that all of us, first of all me, that we would see our sin and that we would want you. We would be excited to live with you, to love you, to be loved by you, and to be used on your mission to bring all those in a kingdom and a dominion of darkness into your kingdom of light. We love you and we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.